I like that extra light. Wow, that's great, those young people. You know, we hear these different place names, Ephesians and Colossians and Thessalonians, and thank you. And we wonder sometimes, you know, we, we don't relate over here in South Florida to what these locations. Why do we have to use? But don't forget, these were all places where people lived. And they're named oftentimes after people. And these Old Testament names are connected to people. Our God is a God of people. He could have just written us a theology textbook with a bunch of treatises in it. But he didn't do it that way. Thank God. He wrote it in a very personal way with real people in real places struggling with real problems and learning about a real God, a real personal God. That's part of what we want to look at in our studies in Hebrews. I'm titling the series, So Great a Salvation. And that comes out at the beginning of chapter 2. Let's just begin this morning. We'll read the first few verses of chapter 1 and the first few verses of chapter 2. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds, who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person, and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. There's a lot there. And we'll try to expand on that as we look at our studies, but move down with your eyes to chapter 2, verse 1. The, the primary thrust of chapter 1 in those first few verses is... God has spoken. Did you, did you catch that? God has spoken in the times past, talking about the Old Testament times, by the prophets, and God has spoken in these last days by His own Son, Jesus Christ. God has spoken. That is the revelation motif that we see all the way through the Scriptures. God is revealing Himself. Romans 1 tells us He reveals Himself in creation. He reveals Himself in our consciences. Even for people who don't know Jesus Christ, they have the testimony of God. God is speaking to them every day when the sun rises, Psalm 19 tells us, right? He's proclaiming His greatness. And, and when the... Super moon rises like last night. He's proclaiming His greatness as Creator, isn't He? And in our conscience, every human being has a conscience. Adolf Hitler had a conscience. But his conscience was seared. As the Bible talks about, we can sear our conscience by ignoring it and then continuing to believe evil and to contest God's Word instead of submit to it, that will eventually sear our conscience. But you still have a conscience. Hitler still had a conscience, but suddenly for him, what was 
good became evil and what was evil became good, he, he couldn't see the distinction between good and evil anymore. And when you're speaking to someone who doesn't know the Lord as Savior and you want to talk to them about conscience, if they're a parent, if they've been a parent, if they've raised a child, they know how conscience works. That's the whole reward, punishment motif that you in child raising, isn't it? That's why it works. That's why when they do something good, you reward them with the idea of what? They'll do more good. And you're appealing to what? Their conscience. And then when they do something contrary, something bad, you spank them or punish them in some way again because you believe, whether you like to believe it or not, you're admitting by your actions, you believe there's a conscience there. And the conscience distinguishes between good and evil. The conscience knows there's reward for good and punishment for evil. Now the conscience becomes a much greater tool when it's invigorated, inspired, enlivened by the Holy Spirit. When we're born again and we have the Holy Spirit and the Word of God dwelling in us, that makes the conscience even more effective. But still, even the unbeliever has a conscience. So the whole thrust of chapter 1 is God has spoken and God is still speaking. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ here this morning and you spent time in God's Word privately with the Lord, God was speaking to you, wasn't He? Brother alluded to that earlier. And it's real. Now you're not hearing an audible voice. I don't hear an audible voice. That's not what we mean. It's even better than an audible voice. Because it touches deep within our soul and our spirit. The Word of God does. You'll get to that in chapter 4 of this letter. But now in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, what the writer will do will move to the human responsibility side of that revelation response motif that we see all the way through the Scriptures. You know, isn't it, isn't it fascinating? God knows how He made us. And He knows that we are responsible moral agents because we have a conscience, because we were made in the image and likeness of God even though that's been tarnished by sin and man brought sin into the world according to Romans 5, right? And death through sin. So we're responsible. Man, humankind, we're responsible for that. We've contaminated the creation. The curse is because of us. We must take responsibility. And that's a word that our culture doesn't like to hear. But it's very important that we communicate it and live it. And so what the writer, and he will do this five different times in Hebrews. He will come back with some very stirring, sometimes very striking language. Like in chapter 6, when he talks about certain people, that it's impossible to bring them to repentance. Well, if that's the case, I want to know who those people are and how they get there. And, and chapter 6 tells us a little bit about that. It's real. Judas Iscariot would be the one primarily in view there, I think. The son of perdition. But here in chapter 2, Therefore, since God has spoken by His Son, 
and we'll look more at, at that in messages to come. Therefore, we must give them more earnest heed to the things we have heard. You see the responsibility side of that? See, God says, <laughs> it isn't going to work that you're just going to be kind of uh, religious theoreticians, right? You know, that we can say we can get theoretical and just say, well, I, I can expound all kinds of details of Christology and the doctrine of soteriology and defend it from the Bible. Yeah, but do you know the Lord? You know, it's possible to do all those things and still not know the Lord and still be lost and still go to the place of perdition where Judas is going. It's still possible. And especially in the age we're living in, it calls itself the information age. And information is abundant. I mean, by you hit... You can Google all kinds of things. I'm not supposed to mention, I guess, certain you know, proprietary informations, right? But anyway, they would, the competitors to Google, don't be offended. But, but you can use whatever, whatever you want to. You can find out all kinds. It's right at your fingertips. You don't have to leave your living room or your bedroom or your bathroom or, or, any, or your car. We live in the information age. But you know what? More information isn't always good, is it? You know, we get into this mindset, this thinking that, why, what? More knowledge is good. More information must be better. A little information is good. More information must be better, right? You know, we even who take more time maybe than a lot of people in studying the Word of God in more detail... We can even fall into the trap of, oh, i got a big library. You want to come see my library? I fell into that trap till the Lord woke me to it. And you see how pride comes in there and you begin to, I'm proud of all these books that I have, but have you read them? Well, no, I don't have time to read them. <laughs> then why did you buy them? Why are you hoarding them? Why are you keeping them? They're sitting there collecting dust. And so I'm beginning to disperse them. Give them into the hand. Put them in circulation. Where, but only with people I know who value them and use them, of course. I don't want them to just become paperweights. But, a, you know, this idea that a bigger library means bigger knowledge. You know how you can fall into that thinking? It, but it's illogical. It's not true. That equation doesn't work. And especially in, the, in, in spiritual things. It's the word of God that we've got to put in our hearts. Not just what men say about it in libraries, in books. And a lot of information can lead us down the wrong road oftentimes, can't it? If we don't come back and check it against the word of God. So he brings this idea. Now, lest we drift away is a fascinating word. The Greeks had uh, robust vocabularies, most of you know. And, and this word is the idea of when a boat is moored by a rope or something to a mooring, when it breaks loose from the mooring, what happens to the boat? It just drifts away. 
but it, it only it does that slowly, doesn't it? So it's a graphic picture. I know there were certain days when the waves were really big down in Gulf Coast, Texas, and we like to be out on the big days, but a lot of those big surf days were also days when there was the waves were coming side shore, so there was a big current. And so we'd go out, we'd paddle out here with the car be parked here, and we'd drift, you know, and we'd be a mile or two away from the car because you couldn't fight the drift, much as you tried. And so you'd have to walk back. But but you could see yourself, you know, even though you're trying to ride against the you know, against the current, you know, you could look up at the car, you'd say, well, now it's over here, now it's over here. This man told the story years ago, I think I've mentioned it here before. He was in the harbor of a certain little city there, in, I think, in Greece. And he saw one of his friend's boats had come loose from its mooring. They, they had their boats there tied up, and it, and, it, and it got loose. And So he quickly went to go get his friend. He was concerned about his property. And as he was trying to find his friend, that boat is drifting further and further out with the tide. He looks out, and now it's going toward the mouth of the harbor. And by the time he got his friend and they got out there, it was already out to sea. Just drifting. And there are a lot of people. I, I, you could say, brother, maybe you should say some people. I think 50 years ago I would have said some people. But I think now I can probably accurately say there are a lot of people. Born again Christians included. Today who are drifting. Drifting away from the truths of the scripture, away from the centrality of Jesus Christ, away from his high priestly ministry for them, which this book, that's the main subject of this book. I mean, the Lord Jesus is at the Father's right hand as our great high priest to help us make it through. We can't get there. We can't accomplish the journey He has put before us. We can't use our spiritual gift that He's given to us as a treasure unless we depend on Him as our high priest to bring us through. Like Aaron in the wilderness was there to intercede for the people. Moses too to some extent, but Aaron was the high priest. He was a picture of what the Lord Jesus is doing now. And you know what? He has grace to help in any time of need for a child of God. Did you know that? That's in chapter 4. As our great high priest, he usually won't dispense that grace unless we ask him. Now sometimes he's so gracious he gives it to us when we don't even ask him because we're too proud to ask him or we're too confused or we're hurting or emotional or whatever. You know, we get confused very easily and distracted like sheep. And he knows that as our shepherd. And so he tells us, grace to help. Go to him and ask him. When a trial hits you right between the eyes, like what happens in the Christian life, I mean, if you're not a believer here today, we're, we're not going to deceive you. It's not all peaches and cream. The Christian life can be a struggle at times. I don't hear any amens on that. I guess I'm the only one that struggles. 
the rest of you are really doing well. You must really be going to the high priest often. And that's good. That's what he's there for, he says. I'm here for you to get you through so you don't have to fail, so you don't have to be humiliated, so you don't have to make mistakes and the same mistakes over and over again. I'm here for you, Jesus says. But I want you to come to me and ask me and admit you need help in your time of need. <laughs> that, is, that is so practical. How do we miss it? I'm speaking to myself. As a young Christian, I didn't know that. I didn't know this truth. Hebrews is a core book in basic curriculum right after Romans. Romans displays, explains the gospel of God. And then to me, Hebrews ought to be next. And when we went through them in Lafayette, Louisiana, that's how we did it. The brethren agreed that that was the right order because that tells us, Hebrews tells us, how we live the Christian life. Once we know we're Christians and we know we're going to heaven and we know that the Lord is there and we're going to see Him and, and all of that in Romans, then we, well, how do I get there? How do I, as a Christian, get there? Do I have to cultivate some sort of inner spiritual light or strength? You don't have any. See, God even though He's given us His Holy Spirit inside of us, He still wants us to go to Him regularly, consistently, every time we have a need. When you have a need, when I have a need, who's the first person we call? Let's get real practical. If, you, if you're married, who's the, is it your spouse or, or the Lord Jesus? If you're a child, is it your parent or a friend or maybe even a lost friend that, that can't help you anywhere with getting no strength because they don't know the grace of God? They don't have a relationship with the Lord. As believers, who's the first person we should go to? The Lord Jesus Christ, our great high priest. And that's one of the theme ideas in Hebrews. If we don't get anything else out of Hebrews, we should get that. Look, Lord saying, you're not on this alone. You're not having to make this alone. Don't sit there and whine about, well, you don't know my, my past. You don't know what a dysfunctional family. Yes, I do. My family was dysfunctional. All of ours were. If you grew up in the 60s and 70s, you know it was. It's probably worse now. <coughs> or you don't know the education system. I got. I mean, we come up with all kinds of excuses and we play the blame game and that gets us nowhere. That keeps us in bondage. It keeps us in fruitlessness. It keeps us from being victorious over our trials. You realize, and I'm speaking to myself too. You know, I'm not saying that I'm got A pluses in this category. Do you realize the normal Christian life is victory over, over trials, not the other way around? But if the world were to look at us today, you and me, me too, would they believe that about the gospel? Would they believe the gospel is the power to save and that the love of Christ makes us super overcomers like Romans 8 tells us? Or would they say, you're more defeated than I am. I'll go back to my psychologist or I'll go back to my religious mysticism or I'll go back to the 
mystery cult that I learned about, or I'll go back to Wicca, or I'll... I was talking to a brother up in, I think I can mention the state, Kansas. I won't mention the city. And he was getting his hair cut and talking to the lady there at the salon that was, that was uh, cutting his hair. She was in her early 30s. Where are you from? Well, she found out he was a believer. And so she said, well, I'm a believer too. She's from Michigan. And she came down with a group of sisters, three or four of them, with a chaperone couple to this certain place in Kansas. And you know what their primary ministry was? Wicca. A lot of us don't even know what that is. That's witchcraft. That's very popular with our young people. Very popular. And they think they're, you know, they're not going into it with the idea of becoming a witch or a warlock. They're curious, our young people are. They want to learn about these. There's power in things in the other world. And they get curious. Then they get drawn in. And their ministry, God bless them. But that is a very dangerous ministry for a believer to be in. And you've got to be very careful and always with a, a partner. And if I'm going to go among people that are demon-possessed or in witchcraft, I'm not going with a partner that's living in carnality. Because, because that person's going to be, you know, you don't want someone, when you're in a foxhole and you're being shot at by the devil, you don't want somebody that's going to turn and run. You want somebody that's gonna, that has a conduit with the Lord that prays and lives it. But I thought, wow, what, what a challenge. And that's one of the things I've seen about our young people. Our young people are, are being drawn in to evil by the hordes. But the ones that are getting saved and coming out have a heart for reality in the Christian life that is, that is invigorating to me. And I'm thankful for it. I haven't seen it since the days of the... Jesus movement in the 70s. Brother and I were talking about that. And, and I hope it continues. We'll see. We'll see how the Lord guides with it. But for these people to give up and to, and to move to a different place and get a job there and support themselves and seek to reach people that they know are in a bad way. That's what the Christian life is about. Don't tell me there's no adventure in the Christian life. If you don't think there's any adventure in it, it's probably because you're on the sidelines for whatever reason or another. Maybe because you put yourself there or maybe because sin has put you there, but you're there. God says, get in the game. I'll give you the grace to help. Every time you fall, you're going to fall, you're going to stumble, you're going to make mistakes, and I'll have grace there to help you in your time of need. You come to me. And you say, well, how many times can I go to him with the same sin? Now, what did he tell Peter? Seventy times seven. So you go back to him again, and you fail again an hour later or two hours later, you go back to him again. It's me again, Lord. Here I am. See, it humbles you. And as it humbles us, that's part of how we get the victory over it. Because we get, if nothing else, we get tired of humbling ourselves and going to him. And we say, Lord, help me get over this thing. And he wants to do that. But there's a real danger in drifting away. And this is the, this, these Hebrew Christians, this is the second generation of the early church that this letter is written to. It's written around 60 to 64, 65 A.D., depending on who you consult. We don't know exactly. But in that time frame, the church started in 30 A.D., so 30 years, we're moving into the second generation. By the time we get to 1 John and Revelation, we're moving into the third generation in the 90s A.D., 
the first century. But he says, we, and I appreciate this mindset of the writer, he puts himself with the people, and it's a collective we, right? In other words, not everybody in this group of Hebrew Christians he's writing to is, is struggling with the things that are drifting away. Some of them are. He may know who they are. He may not know who they are. But apparently he knows that some of them are, whether it's somebody reported that to him or the Holy Spirit put it on his heart. We don't know. It's not important. We must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard. Are you giving earnest heed to the things you have heard up to this day? Am I? What we have heard from the gospel, what we know from the Bible to this point, are we giving earnest heed to it? Because if we're not giving earnest heed to what He's given us, why should He give us more? Right? I mean, as parents, you wouldn't do that. You would wait until the children came up to the place of responsibility with the things you have given them. And then you give them more. And our Lord's no different. And so the writer says, Oh, be giving earnest heed, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken... See, that idea of the word speaking, revelation, through angels, proves steadfast. Now, why is he bringing in angels? Well, he is contrasting our Lord's glory with angels in, in chapter 5, 1, 5 to 14, which, Lord willing, we'll look at tonight. You say, well, why would he do that? What is he bringing in angels for? I mean, that's first chapter, we're, we're moving around. What's he bringing in the angels for? Well, what did he start? He said, God spoke in the Old Testament through the prophets, right? And Stephen tells us in his sermon in Acts chapter 7, Paul in Galatians chapter 3, I believe it is, that the law was given through the ministry of Moses. Angels, right? Moses too. But angels were involved in the ministry and the giving of the law to Moses and then to the people of Israel. So it's consistent with what he's saying about the Old Testament revelation. Angels, you know, of course, the angel of the Lord and then an angel of the Lord brought revelation to the prophets. Different prophets saw different things and recorded that. The recording prophets did. And he says, if the Old Testament revelation given through angels proved steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward. When that man that went out collecting sticks on the Sabbath, right after Moses had given the law from Mount Sinai, when he received his just reward, you remember what his reward was? He was stoned to death. They consulted the Lord, they consulted Moses, and he consulted the Lord, and that was the penalty, the seriousness of it. Every transgression and disobedience received a just reward. All you've got to do, why do you think all those historical books are written in the Old Testament with all those failures? You know, we, we have the detail of Saul's life and his failure. We have the details of some of David's failures and some of the other failures. Is the Lord just trying to humiliate these people? No. Paul tells us, right, in 1 Corinthians 10, these things have been written for our learning. Upon whom the end of the ages has come. They're written for us. That we might learn from their mistakes and not do them. 
And that's what he's saying here. Every transgression received punishment. If that was true in the Old Covenant that was given through the ministry of angels and God has spoken now through His Son who is so much higher than the angels. I mean, it's powerful what He says about them. In, in what I say, we'll look at it tonight. But look at just what He says in verse uh, 8. To the Son, God says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. You think... God is using too much hyperbole there. God the Father turns to Jesus Christ and says, Your throne, O God. I love it. And then when he quotes this powerful passage from Psalm 102 in verse 10, You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. Lord there, Jehovah or Yahweh, the Tetragrammaton, He's speaking of the Lord Jesus. Jehovah, Jesus. Jesus is Jehovah. But not on a fiery mountain now. Now in a human body. With ears and eyes and a nose and a mouth and hands and feet like us. And you begin to see the gravity of what it means to know the Lord Jesus as our Savior. It is a tremendous privilege to know God that way. People throughout history of humankind have wanted to know God. I remember as an unbeliever looking up at the stars and saying, I just want to know God. But I didn't know Him. That wouldn't come for years later. And then once we know Him, to value Him. I mean, think of it. And I'm speaking to myself too. We are so busy in our existential culture. You know, existentialism, you know, that's just living for the day. Just, you know, and then maybe TGIF. You know, on Monday you can start working for, toward Friday. Thank God it's Friday. And we used to talk about that in the office, Right? And then it was Blue Monday because now we got five more days to the weekend again. We can go party. And that's how the world thinks. That's how unbelievers think, the people among whom we... Because it's an existential outlook. Well, all there is is what we have right now. That's existentialism. I don't know if there's any future. I don't know if there's any past. The past has all been revisionist history anyway. They've rewritten it, and so I can't trust it. All I have is what I have right now, and I'm going to live it to the full. Isn't that what all the commercials tell us? But the Bible tells us differently. The Lord says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? He's writing this to professing Christians. You say a professing Christian can neglect the greatness of the salvation? We do it all the time. And we do it more so in the day in which we're living. You say, brother, you are stepping on toes. Well, I'm stepping on my toes first. I'm standing on them too, but I'm, I'm stepping on my toes first. This is, this is, I think, what the Lord wants us to understand. 
And maybe we need to rearrange some priorities in our daily schedule. And maybe we need to rearrange some other things in our lives. But do you know what a great privilege it is to be saved today? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, do you know, do I know how great that is? That's what God is saying here. How shall we escape if we neglect that kind of a salvation? Spoken first through the Lord, then His apostles, and then the miracles and the signs and the gifts of the Spirit given according to God's sovereign will. Beloved, our salvation is great. And that's part of what we're going to look at this week. You know why our salvation is great? Number one, it's great because of who purchased it. That's what chapter 1 is talking about. Who purchased it? Jesus Christ is God. And when He's dying and bleeding on that cross, He's God dying for you and me. That's a great salvation. And the world says, well, I'm not interested in that. I don't have time for that. I'm, I'm not a Jesus freak like you. Or whatever they want to say. When they neglect that kind of salvation and the revelation of the gospel, how shall they escape? Where are they going to turn? There isn't any other place to turn for life, for salvation, is there? Is there any other place to turn? No, the cross is the only place. God's put us all to the cross. And so it's so important. Secondly, in chapter 2, he tells us how, how he saved us. And that's remarkable too. Now, we'll only get to dabble in some of these things this week, but it'll maybe whet some appetites and encourage us because... Hebrews is such a powerful book. It's a powerful revelation from God. Now, don't be of the mindset that, you know, for many years I heard people, when I was a young Christian, they said, well, Hebrews, you know, I'm a Gentile. I mean, that's, that letter's not for me. And, and hey, we, sometimes we've got to be honest, in dispensationalism, you know, we messed that one up if we said Hebrews wasn't to all believers. <laughs> it's to Hebrew Christians. And if you're a Gentile Christian or a Hebrew Christian, what does Ephesians chapter 2 tell us? The middle wall of partitions down. <laughs> it's gone. It's abolished in Christ. We're one body in Christ. There's no distinction in the church. Outside the church, yes. In the church, no. No distinction. We're all one body. So that everything that a Hebrew Christian can suffer, a Gentile Christian can suffer too. Yeah, well, then why does, he, why does he write it to the Hebrews? Well, in the early church, who would know the Old Testament better than any other group? The, the Greeks didn't know it. Unless they were living near synagogue and they were proselyte or something and going to synagogue, they know. But in the Romans and, and the Thracians and, and different other groups, they didn't know. So you're going to talk about God speaking through the Old Testament revelation, the people who you would target would be Hebrew Christians. They were brought up in it. Bring that forward to our day. Who would be in that kind of a place today in this meeting? Second generation Christians. That's who. 
third generation Christians even more so. Fourth generation even more so, right? Because they were brought, I wasn't brought up in vacation Bible school. I remember when they took me as a 28-year-old to a camp, Bible camp? What, what is that? Is that the New Jerusalem on earth? I mean, what, 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 I never, what's a Bible camp? You know, and I heard about Bible town. Oh, wow, you know, up in Boca, the conference center they used to have. You know, what is that? Bible? In this world? But for a second-generation Christian who's been brought up in Sunday school and vacation Bible and quoting verses and like that, more responsibility. They know more, right? The third generation, if they've been brought up like their parents, more so. That's who would be some of these very strong warning passages would be directed to you, second and third generation Christians who should know better and maybe are drifting or neglecting or being sluggish. That's the word you'll use in chapter 6 and other, other things. So it's a very practical letter, isn't it? And yet, no other letter magnifies the glories of our Lord Jesus in all of his offices like this book. I love to preach on it. I could preach on Hebrews the rest of my life every day and I'd be satisfied. But the saints might not be. There are other books in the Bible. So we appreciate your interest in these studies and if you're able to come out tonight, Tuesday night, and other opportunities to study it. Pray the Lord will bless us. Let me close with this. For those of you who don't know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, we're hoping you're going to change your mind. That's what metanoia means, right? Change your mind. Repentance. I remember hearing a couple of years ago, Susan B. Coleman, you know the Breast Cancer Survivors Fellowship. You've heard of that, right? I don't mean it, that the Survivors Fellowship isn't linked to Susan B. Coleman, but you know that she's been in the news, her ministry to breast cancer survivors. But they have a fellowship. And, and hearing the tenets, the, the things that were characteristic of their fellowship, they said, you know what? We're, we know we're all potentially going to die of cancer. So we're all in the same boat. We got each other's back, therefore, because we know we are marked people in the sense of death. We're there to support each other, and whenever one of us falls, we're there to pick them up. This is the Breast Cancer Survivors Fellowship. It almost sounds like a church. And they go on with three or four other things that characterize their fellowship. And at least you sisters and some of us guys are saying, wow, that sounds like a group I'd like to be in. They're there for each other all the time and one of them falls down. They call each other up and they're over there visiting with them. They're helping to pick them up and get them going again. But the, the sad thing is they're doing that without the Holy Spirit and without Jesus Christ's high priestly ministry because they don't know the Lord. They, they're not doing it on the basis of the gospel. They're doing it on the basis of human intuition and wisdom and human strength, which fails compared to a walk with the Lord. But it awakened me to the thought, are they doing better at it than we are? They don't have the Holy Spirit. We do. 
and they're more effective in fellowship ministry than we are? It made me think like that. So we say to those of you who don't know the Lord as Savior, if you're part of a fellowship like that, I hope it ministers need to your needs. But there is going to come a time in your life, and maybe today is that day, when you will come up against a trial, a mountain that you will not be able to go through or cross or get around. And we're praying that you will remember this message or other messages that will tell you that Jesus Christ himself is waiting there for you. He loves you. He's not going to condemn you. He's not going to manipulate you. He's not going to make fun of you. He's not going to humiliate you. He will be there more for you than any survivor's fellowship ever could be because he's ever present. And he's omnipotent. He has all power. And he's glorious. Let's enter in, beloved, those of us who know him. Show the world that what we say and what we say we believe, we live to the glory of Jesus Christ. So, Father, we thank you for your word and for the encouragement it gives us. And we pray that you will help us by your grace touch our hearts today with that truth. And Jesus Christ be glorified through us, corporately, individually, in our lives to a very hurting world, a world that is aimless and hopeless in many ways. So many people that need the Lord Jesus. We pray that you will help us to be sensitive to that need and to share the gospel and to live the gospel before them. That Christ may receive the rewards of his sufferings. We ask in the Lord Jesus' name. Amen.